Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, I have Dr. Jordan Grant, who is a board-certified urologist. He is also a nationally recognized expert in hormone replacement therapy. He practices urology at Paris Urology in Texas and is the medical director of an optimization clinic called Ways to Well, which might sound familiar to some of you, as it is the clinic that Joe Rogan frequently discusses and talks about being a patient of on his podcast. So Dr. Grant, uh, welcome to the show today. Hey, Amy. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by asking, what's it like having a public figure like Joe Rogan essentially endorse a clinic that you're the medical director of? Because I know how busy and crazy things are at Victory. I can't imagine if somebody like him was like, hey, I go to Victory Men's Health. You should check it out. (laughs) It has been, uh, you know, on my end, it's not as bad as it's been on the nurse practitioners. We'll just put it that way (laughs) because they're having to see the patients and do uh there's a the waiting list jumped massively i think when brigham did the the podcast back in i think that was the end of september the applications went through the roof and it's uh it's been it's been kind of crazy since then in a good and bad way you know just because as you know when you get that busy it's exciting but then a lot of moving pieces have to be put in place new people hired and then all the little bugs in the system can come up and not that they're having those but i just i know what that's like but yeah, no, it's it's interesting, um, and so I'm more power to them. I mean, it's awesome. I think they're they're having a lot of success too, you know. And, and it's not the part that I oversee as much with the um, regenerative cell therapy, which is kind of a separate part. But they are having a lot of success with healing injuries and things like that, especially in the the jujitsu guys and all that all, all that side of things. You know, the guys that Rogan knows, which is a fascinating part that I don't know as much about. I stick with with what I know, which is the hormone side. So yeah. So it's a brace for impact moment when that episode aired. Absolutely. So it is pretty cool that somebody as public as Joe Rogan is putting hormone optimization and peptide therapy and some of the stem cell therapy on the map. I think it's much needed because here we are in 2023 and it still feels like there's a lot of physicians out there that are dismissive about the benefits and importance of hormones and even dismissive to the symptoms patients are experiencing that are more than likely hormone related. Why do you think that is? Man, that's a that's a big can of worms. I've been wondering this, I think, for a long time. So just kind of a background real quick, just to give you my kind of perspective, is that I became interested in hormones, you know, when I was 18 years old. You know, I'm looking into steroids, doing that stuff, fun. You know, you're just trying to get big, bro. Yeah. And um, but But I really researched all that stuff. And so I had a knowledge of hormones. When I finally went to med school, which was later in life, uh, I was 27, I, I knew I wanted to probably do something, you know, with hormone optimization just because I always had that passion. And you start picking up little urban legends and you hear all your medical school colleagues kind of knocking anybody who talks about testosterone. There's this big bias against it and in the medical field. And you know that as well as, as I do. I'm sure you see it as well. And it's the question is why? And there's probably more than one answer to that. I've I've thought about this a lot and we could speculate all day on it. I think a big part of it is people associate testosterone replacement with uh, anabolic steroid use. 
I think, you know, with the, all the propaganda from the late 80s and going into the early 90s, the after-school specials with Ben Affleck and he's raging and all that. And then the Steroid Control Act, you know, in 1990, I believe it was, that puts that idea in people's head that testosterone is bad, it's dangerous, it's going to turn a man, you know, men are already, you know, derided this day and age. It's going to turn a man into, a, you know, an angry hulk. And um, we all we know that's not true. You know, it's actually the opposite of that. But that stigma stays. And as everybody probably knows, um, old myths die hard, especially in the med- in the medical world. You know, we still have to hear the myth of, oh, you can't take testosterone. It'll give you prostate cancer. You know, I hear that still all the time, which is not true. But doctors still say it. And so I think it's something like that. I think it's people that just repeat what they've heard and. They just have the bias against it. Now, as far as nowadays, when they should know better, I, I don't know what, what's there. I think it's changing slowly. I, I'm starting to see, you know, more nurse practitioners, just even GP type nurse practitioners are willing to do TRT on their patients. Um, peptide therapy, if the patient's bringing it up, they're at least willing to look into it. Hey, let me look into that for you. MDs, the older school type, they're not. They're just, for the most part, they're just against it. And that's just the way it is. It takes several generations for things to change. So I don't have a 100% answer as to why the bias is there, but it's very frustrating. And I'm sure, again, you know this, the things I hear every day from patients is, to, you know, my cardiologist told me this, or my PCP said I have to stop TRT because of this. And you know it's not true. And it, it drives me up the wall. So I think I spend half of my time counseling people on the truths of these things or, or, you know, you need to ask your physician to back that, that up. We do it in the hormone uh, group all the time on Facebook, like ask your provider to back up what they say and they won't be able to do it, you know, when they start spewing that stuff. So, you know, it's a fascinating thing to see. Yeah. And hopefully people can just self-educate through platforms like this and through the platform that you just mentioned on Facebook, which give the name of that group because I'm in that group and there are a lot of good questions and you and Gil and a few other experts are on there answering them very well. Yeah, it's called uh, TRT and Hormone Optimization. And um, there's also the same name on YouTube and there's lots of good videos on YouTube, just totally free stuff, tons of educational videos, injection techniques, protocol changes, all kinds of stuff. Um, But I, I think our group was, we tried to, and Stephen Devos is the one who started the group, by the way. He's a dermatologist. He's overseas. Um, and it's his group. And then, you know, a lot of us are moderators. And we try to stay as evidence-based as we can. And, and I don't mean evidence-based per se, meaning like adherence to guidelines, because guidelines are usually way behind good evidence. I mean, let's go look into these claims. Let's find papers. Let's dissect things. And that's kind of, that's what I did four and a half years ago with the estradiol topic, which we may talk about. Start looking at papers. How do you validate that claim? Is this true? Why are we saying this? And so we, we do, we try to stick with more of that stuff. You know, is elevated hematocrit going to kill you? All these questions that come around every single day. And so that's what I love about our group. I got kicked out of several of the big TRT groups on Facebook for, First, just asking questions, you know, before I knew a lot, you know, and then when I started learning more, they didn't like my answers. And so we, we kind of we're, we're a little bit rogue in our group and, and guys like people that are looking for that kind of thing will find us. And those that want to go the other route, that's fine. You know, that's what I love about, you know, free market is you've got a choice. So, well, some of the questions crack me up because it's you see a lot of those estradiol questions and I just want to respond Please scroll down five messages ago and you will see that 
Grant and Gil schooled another person on estradiol. <laughs> and it's like, oh my gosh, I cringe just waiting for what to see what you guys are going to say back to them. But again, it's it's a it's a great group to get self-educated and ask questions. And so I find the hormones are such a unique group of people because like if I think of, I don't know, people going to get Botox, I, there's not these like all these little Botox forums where people are Googling all these random questions they should ask their Botox injectors. But yet on these hormone forums, you see, I mean, people are deep diving into this stuff. It's it's a really unique specialty, I guess. I don't know what else to say about it. No, it is. And I, I love it for that reason. You know, a lot of, especially, I don't know how it is in the female world, but like in the men's world, you're always going to have these um, forums so guys that are into cars, right, or guys that are into side-by-sides or guys that are into hunting or fishing, there's always these huge forums on the Internet that have been around for a long time, and that's where guys do deep dives. And you really – you always find there's a few, quote-unquote, experts in those groups that people kind of go to because they've been there, done that, and they're kind of more like the veterans. Uh, it was the same in the bodybuilding world. You know, you find these forums, and there's always those guys. So it's a natural thing because you're not going to find a lot of these answers by going to your doctor. It's not going to happen. Doctors don't stay up. They're, they're not interested in the in the everyday practical, what's going on? How do you actually feel when you do this? They're they're going by rhetoric and a lot of textbook stuff that's outdated. And so that's why I love those those types of outlets. So for the people that are watching right now can see that you're in great shape. I'm not sure how old you are, but 43, 43. Tell me about your personal optimization routine, hormones, supplements, biohacking. What do you do to stay in shape? Yeah. So I, um, I've been into working out since I'm five years old. I had a whole Hulk, Hulk Hogan weight set and I was obsessed. You know, I wanted to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was, I was that, you know, and I'm 43. So Ooh, I, I just started that doc. I just started that documentary on Netflix. I need to watch it. I, I love, I just, I don't know. I love it. Yeah. And, uh, I was obsessed with working out. Like I said, when I was, you know, teenager, I wanted to, I just, I wanted to be those guys. Um, and so I dabbled with, you know, performance enhancing stuff in college. And then I kind of got out of shape in my twenties a little bit and finally picked, picked working out back up in uh, medical school when I was 27, but I was always kind of soft and squishy. I never knew how to eat right. And so basically I got on TRT when I was 34 and I was still kind of working out, always working out. I knew how to work out, but I didn't ever know how to eat. And then when I was 36, I got up to 240 pounds. My wife and I, we'd been dating at the time, eating food, enjoying life. You know how that goes. She moved away to fellowship, and I had a, a year left in residency. And so I decided I've got to get this fat off. And so I learned how to count calories. I learned how to weigh my food. Uh, I dropped 52 pounds that year, and I really got in shape. And so the TRT definitely helped maintain muscle while dieting more than I ever knew how important that was. Cause every time I dieted when I was younger, I always lost just as much muscle as I did body fat, if not more. And so now I try to stay, you know, we eat clean, quote unquote, clean, lean meats and veggies for the most part. And as far as hormones go, I mean, it's really right now on testosterone cream. I love it. I, I feel fantastic. I switched over to that a year ago. I've never felt better. Um, I do take NP thyroid, not because my labs were bad, but I wanted to take it to see if I could feel better. Uh, just a little few things that were still missing. And because uh, I'm all about trial and error more than lab numbers. I feel fantastic with that. And I actually stopped taking pretty much any supplements that I used to take. I try to get everything through diet if possible. As far as biohacking, it's I've known about it for a long time. I'm pretty cautious with myself. I mean, I've taken a lot of things in the past, you know, on the anabolic side, but with peptide, peptides are a new, a newer thing, relatively. 
I did start taking uh, Ipamorelin uh, CJC1295 about three months ago, and um, my sleep has improved so much that um, I don't want to go without it. I know I'm not going to have to kind of cycle it, but it's it's been a game changer as far as sleep. And that's for me was, was amazing. And, and, you know, a lot of patients have been asking me and I'm a urologist, you know, you know, still. And so they'll start wanting to talk about peptides and I can't put as much focus on that right now as I would like to, you know, that I probably will one day, but I had to start looking into this more and going, yeah, let me look into that. I can prescribe it for you, but let me make sure blah, blah, blah. And I would consult with like Denise with ways to well, cause they're doing peptides. And so I do have an awesome resource there. And so anyway, the longer I do this and look into it, I think the peptide thing is really fascinating. And so, yeah, for me, it's really ipamorelin, thyroid, testosterone. But other than that, it's really lifestyle. It's workout right. Make sure you're getting good recovery. And the diet is 90% of it, honestly. And we've tried to really clean up our diets in the last year or so with actually going more like local home, you know, local grown, like organic, try to avoid everything coated in pesticides and all. Because I do think... That's part of why we're seeing so many uh, hormone issues in a lot of people. There's so much hormone disruption, and I think a lot of it is the food. So for the testosterone cream, are you doing it transcrotal? I am. I am. I uh, When I first heard about that, I knew about the cream, you know, for a while. But when I, I think it was about four or five years ago when I joined the TRT group and Stephen was doing the transcrotal cream and other guys were talking about it on Jay Campbell's podcast, you know, Keith Nichols and those guys were talking about it. And I was like, what is this? Uh, like this is a whole new thing. <laughs> yeah. And um, I started doing it with patients and it was unbelievable. I had a guy, I always use this example. He was doing eight clicks of cream a day to his shoulders. His levels were only in the 500s. He didn't feel well. I was like, tell you what, switch to two clicks on your scrotum and let's check your blood work in four weeks. And his levels went to 1200 on two clicks of cream just on the scrotum part. So I was like, okay, there's something to this. And so I started prescribing. I've been prescribing it for since I've been here in Paris. Uh, so almost five years. And finally, enough guys, I got such good feedback. And then some of the moderators in the TRT group are on it. They're like, dude, you got to try the cream. I'll just just try it. And so, okay. So a year ago, tried it. And I'm not looking back at this point. So. Yeah. We nicknamed it ball butter. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. The first need- men are like, I'm doing what? <laughs> yep. I know. You're like, yep. yeah, that, that it's, that's the best way to do it. <laughs> it is. It's fantastic. So yeah. uh, that's funny. So what are your thoughts on clinics using Clomid with testosterone therapy as a replacement for HCG? And maybe I should let the listeners know HCG has uh, become more difficult for some clinics to get and you have to use commercial branded HCG. It, there was a shortage, et cetera, et cetera. And so a lot of clinics, not us, pivoted, though, to adding Clomid in conjunction with testosterone therapy since they couldn't get HCG. Man, it gets my blood boiling, to be honest with you. I think mainly because I knew it was a it was a business decision for them because they couldn't restructure with probably a vendor than it was doing what's right for the patient. And that's what frustrated me the most with it, because I think most people were probably contracted with Empower and Empower can't, you know, they can't uh, compound HCG anymore. Clomid is not a al- good alternative to HCG. Clomid can basically work against your optimization with TRT. You're blocking certain receptors that are important. You know, estrogen as a whole is very important. And I know, you know, Clomid is not an aromatase inhibitor, but most guys who take Clomid do not feel better when they take it. In fact, a lot of them will feel very much worse. I took Clomid in college after a testosterone cycle. I can't remember what I'd done. I was like 19 or 20. Took Clomid afterward as a post-cycle therapy, and it was terrible. 
the acne, the, the just the the emotional fluctuations. It was it was awful. But I see that in guys, and I remember prescribing it myself when I was you know early out of residency. Some to young guys who who you know had low T, they wanted to maintain fertility. I wasn't bold enough yet to do what I do now. And I put them on Clomid and yeah, their numbers would improve, but their symptoms wouldn't. And I was like, man, there's just something, something's not right here. It's not. And that's where I first, this was probably six years ago, first started getting the hint that lab numbers aren't, aren't everything. And so I think now um, people just need to understand. And we educate people in the group on this. And it's the same thing with like gonadarellin, right? They'll come in and say, my clinic is demanding we, that I take gonadarellin because they can't get HCG anymore. And we're like, well, that's not going to work the same way. It's it's just not. If you actually look at the studies for gonadarellin and how it's supposed to be dosed, you ask them, are you dosing this two or three times a day? And they go, well, no, it's once a week. Like, well, then it's not going to do what you want it to do. And it would be insanely expensive, you know? And so just little things like that. And it's all because these pharmacies just don't go find out how do we actually get the HCG that we need. So, and HCG itself is a wild card, right? Like some guys do better with it. Some guys do a lot worse with it. Um, I really mainly use it for guys trying to maintain fertility or regain fertility, but I'm not against it if they want to take it as an adjunct to their TRT. It is not TRT. I do not like HCG monotherapy or HCG clomid therapy without testosterone. I mean, that's, that just drives me up the wall. Yeah. And I, I don't understand the feedback loop, like thinking that that feedback loop is the same and how that would actually work in conjunction with testosterone to uh, preserve fertility. Like uh, my my brain doesn't understand and nobody's nobody's been able to explain it to me otherwise. So it's like you're you're taking one step forward, one step back, basically. I mean, you're still you're sending the signal to suppress it while you're trying to, you know, with clomid we're talking about while you're trying to trick the body at the same time. And to me, giving mixed signals to the body like that is not likely going to lead to good results. You know, and HCG, again, is also suppressive. People don't realize that, that if you take HCG, you will suppress your pituitary production of of LH. You're supplying something to the body. The body sees it as, okay, I don't need to make this other hormone anymore. And so a lot of people don't know that. And so that, you know, it's just little things like that, that we try to you gotta you gotta be detailed with for people because it's so easy just to say something and prescribe it, and then patients start feeling bad. And if you don't know what's going on, you're not going to know how to really, uh, you know, alleviate that. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that you weren't as bold then as you are now with men that have low T but also want to maintain fertility. So how do you manage that situation now in your clinic? So. A lot of it depends on if they already have kids or, or don't have kids. Because um, if it's a, let's say it's a 36-year-old, they've got three kids, and I'm like, you, do you want to have any more kids? Ah, we don't know. If it happens, it happens. I'm not going to be as strict with them as I would be, let's say it's a 22-year-old that nobody else will touch because they won't. It's just the way it is. I had one this week. I think it's 24. I'm not going to deny treatment to these guys if they need it. So they come in, let's say they, they're married a year or two, they have no children, they want to have kids. And so first thing we do is make sure they actually need testosterone. You know, we do a little bit more of a full workup just to be sure we're not missing something, you know, as far as gonadotropin levels, prolactin, all these things. But once that's kind of sorted out, if they truly sounds like they need testosterone, I have them go get a baseline semen analysis because it's nice to know where they're starting from. Because what if they're starting zero? You know, that's a whole different can of worms than if they're starting at 60 million uh, sperm. And so I have them get a baseline semen analysis and I recommend they freeze sperm up front just in case something happens down the road that they aren't able to regain fertility if, if they become sterile on testosterone. I did that when I started testosterone at 34. So 
we do that, and then I discuss HCG with them that they're going to need to probably take that alongside their testosterone to maintain their counts if they're good. We start them on testosterone alone first because I do not like throwing multiple variables at people at one time. So we get them on testosterone at least, you know, six to eight weeks just to see how they respond to it, how they feel, how they respond to a certain dose. And then we add in the HCG along the way. That's kind of my baseline protocol. I also have guys that come, and this is kind of a separate topic, but similar, that come who've been on testosterone for years and HCG already. They're with another clinic. They go get a semen analysis because they're not getting pregnant and they have zero sperm and they freak out. And so they, you know, they're told you've got to stop your testosterone and take Clomid. That's what all these places tell them. And so I say, no, you don't. Let's get you on follicle stimulating hormone. And so that's what we do. We get, we bump their HCG dose a little bit, keep them on TRT, add in follicle stimulating hormone. And so far, I don't think I've had anybody that's failed that protocol. I may have had one guy who's just Tesla's just did not respond, but that's, it's good to know that because if they're not going to respond to FSH, they probably have a primary problem with the testicle itself and they may end up truly needing to go see a fertility specialist, get a, you know, micro testy dissection and freeze sperm and all these things that are set. It's not a hormonal issue at that point. Right. So what kind of dosing for HCG are you using? <sighs> for fertility purposes? Yes. Like maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. For maintenance, it's, I stay low. Um, I like 250. I use three times a week to start because I, I feel like as low as possible to get the job done. I see a lot of guys when they high dose HCG have a lot more issues. They have water retention, they have acne, they have emotional issues. You know, it's just, they feel weird because it's not a bioidentical hormone. I know people think it's LH. It's not LH. Uh, just because it's acting like LH doesn't mean it's the same thing. And so I've, I found a few studies where they found that on average, a minimum of about 750 IUs weekly was enough to maintain sperm counts, at least for a while. So that's kind of the number I picked. And I split it up three times a week just to maintain stable levels. Yeah, the studies that I've read on HCG being able to maintain or regain sperm count have been really good What with men on testosterone. Absolutely. So I think, yeah, you know, it seems like... You know, that's also kind of one of the misconceptions that comes along with testosterone. They think that, you know, their sperm cut's going to go to nothing forever. And that that would be a very outlying situation from our experience and the studies that we've read and follow. Yeah. And I tell guys, I tell guys up front, it's not a guarantee that they'll be sterile from testosterone. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you don't want to use it as birth control. No, not at all. <laughs> no way. Uh, uh, um, so let's talk a little bit about SHBG. What do you consider an elevated SHBG? And when you see an elevated SHBG, do you automatically start the patient on a higher testosterone dose? It's I don't see a truly very high, like way out of the normal that often. I've had maybe a handful of guys where their SHBG has truly been like, you know, 75, 100. I had one come at 150. I do tend to start them at higher doses because it's going to take a while for the androgen to suppress the SHBG. We don't know a lot about this SHBG thing. I, there are no good studies done on this. It's all anecdotal. I all like playing around with dosing, figuring out how people respond. I have more issues with guys, honestly, with a lot of times with super low SHBG when they're like single digit and trying to get those guys dialed in because you don't know why their SHBG is always that low. A lot of those guys, though, it's that low because of other health, like if they're diabetic or let's say they're taking androgens like on the outside. It's harder to dial those in sometimes, whereas the high guys, you know you can overcome the highest HBG with higher doses of testosterone. 
And so that's kind of how I see it right now. I wish there were better studies done on this. It's a, but it's so many confounders with SHBG. I think it would actually be very hard to do quote unquote real science on it. I think you're going to always be a lot of anecdotal stuff with this. So you think when you see a low SHBG, that, that can point to a sign of somebody being insulin resistant metabolic syndrome going on? It, it could. I, I looked for a few papers and there are some just, you know, SHBG a lot of times just genetically determined. It's, it's made in the liver and it is just, it is what it is when that person, it's not even the PSA level, right? Some guys have a high PSA, that doesn't mean they have cancer, some have low and they do. I think it's similar to that, but certain things drive it down pathologically and um, diabetes is one of those things it seems like. Same thing with anabolic steroid use. If somebody's taking a lot of a lot of gear, their SHB somebody comes in, their SHBG is three and they're jacked, you probably know why their SHBG is three. <laughs> <laughs> so I've seen it. Uh, so, uh, so I've talked about this on numerous podcasts, but in case there's still people questioning it or wanting to know more about it, uh, give your stance on taking an AI to block estrogen. <laughs> So that's probably what I'm known the most for because I was so adamant about that in the in the TRT group. I'm like, you know, the anti AI guy because I did the video, and so I am I am vehemently against it. I do not think it's needed. The quick and dirty of this, and I'll just go with what, what the our one hour video. I'll try to sum it up in like a minute. So estradiol in a man is similar to estradiol in a postmenopausal woman. This means estradiol is an intracrine hormone, not an endocrine hormone. All right, so we don't have gland that's pumping out estrogen into our, into our uh, bloodstream. Uh, once you're taking testosterone, you shut down the testicles from doing that. And they only add a little bit anyway. But once you're on testosterone, your estradiol and the tissues comes from conversion via aromatase. That's all done at the tissue level. So this level that people are checking in the bloodstream is literally just an amalgamation of all your tissues kind of leaking a little bit of estradiol and you're getting a level. But the tissues themselves make estradiol in different amounts depending on how much they need. So this idea that you need to take a, a poison that essentially poisons the body from converting testosterone to estrogen based on a lab number is literally insane. And so... That being said, estrogen is very important. And I'll never forget the Neil Rousier video he did with Jay Campbell on the importance of estrogen in men, which prompted me to look into this deeper. And if anybody wants probably the best paper that summarizes this, it's called Estradiol as a Male Hormone. Go look it up, download it, read it. It goes through every body system, the benefits of estrogen in those systems. There's just no reason to suppress estradiol conversion, in my opinion. I know people blame estradiol on all kinds of things, and it's a lot of bro science and myth. And this is done on both sides. The bodybuilding bro sides do it, and then the PCPs do it as well. PCPs do it because they don't know anything other than, oh, that, that marker is in the red. It must be bad. That, that's all they know. But the bro side hates the estrogen, right? There's this myth that estrogen's evil. Estrogen is the, one of the biggest parts of the benefits of TRT, the bone health, the sexual health, libido, all these things. So, no, uh, summarize, I am against aromatase inhibitor use, and a big big part of my practice is getting men off of that and just to trust the process that they will feel better if they just give things some time. So, Do you ever, quote, just use a little bit? Never. A little bit of an A. Okay. I will not prescribe Perfect. an aromatase inhibitor, I promise okay. you. I, I did a couple times before I knew all of this. And now if somebody's like, hey, I need to renew my letrozole, I'm like, nope, not happening. I will not do it. Because <laughs> we do see other clinics, you know, be like, yeah, you know, estradiol is important. You shouldn't block estrogen. But there's like the, always an asterisk, just a little bit if, and I'm like, no. <laughs> so we're on the same page there. We don't, we don't, you know, block it at all. 
either. And I agree, Neil Rousier does a good job at hammering this home, and he's got he's got good videos on on YouTube. Yeah, his 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 series with Jay Campbell is well worth watching. I think it was like a three parter, and he, I mean, it's it may be boring for some people because he's literally just going through study after study. But for those of us that do this for a living, uh, if you really want to know more, and I'm not saying take everything he says at, at at you know as gospel, but look, go look into it. Use that as a springboard to go look into it. Yeah, exactly. So I want to ask you about kidney stones, and I know they can be very troublesome for for people. A, a urology question here. That's right. Not that hormones like aren't urology, but but <laughs> uh, transition here a little bit. Like, is there anything a man or a woman can do to cut down on the number of frequent kidney stones that they're getting? Depends on what kind of stone they're making, first of all. So if you're a you know uric acid stone former, you're going to see those a lot more common in diabetics, uh, people with like chronic acidosis issues. Um, and so urine alkalinization is going to be key to prevent uric acid stones. In fact, if you're a uric acid stone maker, you can dissolve uric acid stones with alkalinization. So put somebody on sodium bicarbonate, potassium citrate, or anything with high citrate, you can actually dissolve those stones. Now, there's all kinds of pathologies that can lead to stones, and we don't. We're talking about the everyman, the everyday person who might be like a calcium stone former. Man, I tell you, I know what the textbooks taught me, and I know about doing the the full you know 24 hour urine and all this stuff. Nowadays, that I've been doing this long enough, I, I had this conversation this week. You know, I could tell people you can do all the right things, have a totally normal 24 hour urine, and be a a chronic stone maker, and you could do all the wrong things and have an ugly 24-hour urine and not make a single stone your whole life. So for me, it's not as cut and dry as we are told. That being said, I think fluid, hydra- like hydration is number one. I think a lot of people are chronically dehydrated. I think a lot of people uh, don't get enough electrolytes in their, in their diet and in their fluids. I think that's a big one. I think citrate in the diet you know, and then I think people, if you're like eating nothing but high oxalate containing foods, I think that's a big contributor. You see people with gastric bypass that start having issues with that, Crohn's disease. So gut health issues in general, I think if you have some malabsorption going on, you're going to probably be more prone. So get your gut health in order. Um, but for me, the number one thing is hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. And I try to get people to hydrate with citrate containing fluids. I like sugar-free crystal light just because it's cheap and it tastes good and it's got citrate, even though, yeah, I know there's chemicals in it, but you know, it, we got to balance at some point. You know, if you can find natural ways to get that citrate up, if you want to make regular lemonade every day with lemons and squeeze them, go for it. People will try that, but they're not compliant with it. <laughs> <laughs> they try it for like the first day <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then they're yeah. off to something else. So another urology question. So should people view like frequent urination or having to wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, just like a quote, normal part of aging. Cause you hear a lot of older people be like, well, you know, at three o'clock I got up to go to the bathroom, but that's just part of aging. What do you say to that? Some of those things are true. Um, they've done studies, you know, as people do age, they make more of their total 24 hour urine volume at nighttime. And that's called nocturnal polyuria. It just means you're making a lot of urine at night. And so there's a difference between that and then if, let's say, a man comes to see me and he's getting up six times at night, but he's only he's only urinating 30 cc's at a time, right? He's not making a lot. He just can't empty his bladder. That's when it becomes an issue. Or let's say it's the opposite where, you know, they're going that often because they have urgency frequency. They've got actual overactive bladder or they're diabetic, you know. So you got to tease through that. And that's why, you know, as urologists, we always do voiding diaries, um, we, or we're supposed to, Um you know, sometimes just by talking to people, you can figure out with other symptoms what's actually going on. But it's always it's, it's normal to get up, quote unquote, normal 
all things being equal, one to two times at night for even most people. I mean, I get up once at night, you know, except since I started taking Ipamorelin, I usually don't, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, what we see a lot of with, with getting up at night is uh, sleep apnea. So people with obstructive sleep apnea will tend to have nocturnal polyuria. Um, and the, a lot of them, they'll blame it on aging or I'm just getting older. Yeah. Or, or it's my prostate. And then you, they don't have any of those other prostate symptoms. You go, yeah, have you had a sleep study? Or you always ask, do you snore? Does your wife say you snore or whatever? And so, no, I think if it seems pathologic, if it seems like something that's excessive, go have it worked up. It may not be a urologic problem. It may be a total body, you know, fluid problem where you're, or it may not be a problem at all. It may just be, you're getting, you know, an 85 year old that's making two, you know, most of their urine volume at night. And that's a harder thing to, to deal with. So. Okay. Let's talk about BPH. Cause this is also a, a frequent issue that, that men experience. One, maybe explain what BPH is if they don't know. And then do you start men on testosterone that have BPH? Yep. So BPH is ben- benign prostatic hyperplasia. Um, it's kind of a misnomer because we use it, the term loosely, just to mean guys with enlarged prostates that's pressing down on the urethra that's causing urinary symptoms. BPH is actually a pathologic diagnosis. You would actually have to take tissue samples and send it and diagnose it as hyperplasia. So we're using it in an equivocal manner. Um, but yeah, it's basically prostate gets enlarged, compresses the urethra, and you start having obstructive voiding symptoms. So there was myth for a long time, and it's still around, that testosterone either causes or worsens prostatic enlargement and or prostate cancer. That is not true. You know, Dr. Morgan Taylor, anybody can look up the studies he's done in the last 10 or 15 years and see that all this was falsified. Um, so I have no issue starting a man on TRT with enlarged prostate symptoms. In fact, I see their symptoms often improve, and there are studies on lower urinary tract symptoms improving with testosterone replacement because, in my opinion— a lot of guys with pathologic prostate enlargement, they have comorbidities that kind of clue you in that, that you know, they're diabetic or they have some type of endothelial dysfunction, some kind of vascular diseases, and that's likely why the gland is enlarging like it is. Now, some of it's probably just genetic, like it's just your size of prostate. But I do think there's a pathologic component to it. it this kind of stuck out of me in residency because I'd have to go put catheters in so many guys in the PACU, in the, post, in the anesthesia unit, after they'd had like a heart cath and they couldn't pee. So many men with cardiac issues have enlarged prostates and like pathologic. And it's like, that's an interesting correlation. Well, total body health is prostate health, right? Like it's, it's, it's everything, you know, your organ health. And so some things present in different organs, but so no, I have no problem starting TRT because it's going to likely improve their total body health as long as they're doing other things properly. And the same thing with elevated PSA. And I'm maybe one of the few urologists that don't immediately like get scared and tell a man to stop their TRT if their PSA goes up because why would I? I mean, are we telling men with elevated PSAs who aren't on testosterone to go castrate themselves? No. You know, it, it doesn't happen. That, so why would I take you off something that's making you better when I know it doesn't cause prostate cancer or worsen it? I, so I have to go I have to go by what I know, and I'm not going to um, – I don't want to be a hypocrite, you know. So, And I, I actually have guys who have stayed on their testosterone while they went and had their prostate removed somewhere, while they went and had radiation. Now, I don't know if they told, I don't know if they told those other doctors that – but I know they did it, and they're fine. And so with this this stuff has to this myth has to die uh, a horrible death, hopefully soon, because these men are ripped off of their treatments so frequently by urologists, even or worse, urologists throw them on five alpha reductase inhibitors, finasteride or dutasteride, was- and yeah, I figured you might ask that. I will not. Pres- <laughs> that was. Oh, it drives me nuts. They're, these things are toxic. They're just like aromatase inhibitors. It's the same process. 
DHT is an intracrine hormone. It's made in the tissue level. There's studies done where men were given testosterone and then DHT levels in the prostate were measured like by biopsy. Serum testosterone levels changing did not influence those prostatic DHT levels. These organs maintain their own intracrine hormone levels based on the tissue's needs. So giving extra testosterone is not going to cause those levels to go up and cause any pathology. It's all based on the tissue itself. And yeah, of course, if you take away that hormone, it may shrink the prostate. But that doesn't mean that giving more is going to going to cause it to get worse people see that as an equal you know balanced scale and it's not that's not how it works yeah and maybe just to back up a little bit finasteride is very easily accessible now to people because of hymns and romans and keeps and and people are are doing these telehealth visits and getting on finasteride for hair loss and are you seeing a lot of that in your practice so i have had to deal with now, I won't say a lot, but um, a lot of guys that have found me through the testosterone Facebook group or been referred to me, and, and we're talking like a 20, 21-year-old that took Propecia twice for fear of hair loss, and they immediately lose all penile sensation. They become depressed. They lose their libido, and they don't know what to do, and they've, they've got classic post-finasteride syndrome. And I know that many doctors poo-poo that, like it's not a real thing. I don't know how to prove that one way or another. I think it is a real thing. I think it's worse than the data probably indicated. Um, you're, and we, we knew about it in residency, but it was like, oh, it's you know five, less than 5% of men or less than one. They just blew it off. It's not. And even if you're not getting true post-finasteride or finasteride syndrome, you're still harming your health by blocking DHT. DHT is just as important as estradiol. Like, we, we were made, we were created to make these hormones for a reason and thinking that we know better you, you end up harming people's health. I think there have been studies on 5-alpha reductase inhibitor usage and elevated or in, worsened insulin resistance. You know what I mean? Like worsening, leading to diabetes. And um, it just makes sense because these hormones help your metabolism. And when you block them, you're, you're doing to jack some things up in your body. Yeah, I don't think people realize that they're just trying to save their hair. I don't think they realize that there's a hormone, there's this downstream effect that's happening. They're thinking just like in this silo. And unfortunately, it can be pretty detrimental to to your overall health. And just looking, they just, patients need to realize they need to explore other options and other topicals before headed down that. Don't believe everything you hear on those commercials that it's that easy to do. And I would say the same thing for prostate patients. When you go to your urologist and they start, the first thing they want to do is throw you off an asteroid, be hesitant or ask them, you know, like, like, just understand the risks that you're taking for that because, yeah, you may shrink the prostate a little bit. Here's my, here's my thinking on it. As a urologist, if you've got a big enough prostate that's causing that big of symptoms, you're already taking tamsulosin or, or an alpha blocker. You're already taking daily Cialis. You're still having that big of issues. You don't need to go take a poison. You need to go have a prostate surgery. You need to go have something to remove that tissue because it's compressing so much that a pill's not going to fix it. And so that's that's kind of my spiel on that. Like, get the tissue fixed. Uh, no, it's not addressing the root cause, but hopefully you can do that at the same time, you know. But just don't don't go take these things because you're going to end up, you know, it's going to hurt you sexually and then hurt you also on just your overall health, in my opinion. Okay, since we're talking about sex and Cialis, let's talk about erectile dysfunction. And I want you to. I want you, well, I want you to educate on penile implants. I don't even, I don't think you do them at where you're at, but you're obviously going to have an understanding of them and just, you know, kind of walk people through what a penile plant 
is and does and maybe things that you do to treat ED before you would refer out for a penile implant? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, Penile implant, and there's a couple of different kinds. There's the pump version, and then there's just what's called a malleable prosthesis, which you just basically, it's just in the penis alone that's bendable. So you kind of always have a semi-erection, and then you bend it up when you want to use it, and you bend it down when you don't. We actually had guys in residency, like old guys at the VA, would literally want a malleable implant just so they'd have something to hold on to when they pee, uh, which is crazy. Uh, but the inflatable, the IPP, the inflatable penile prosthesis is the one that most people think about, which is essentially a hydraulic system. There is a, there's two, you know, cylinders that are implanted into the penis in place of the corporate cavernosa, which normally fill with blood. So once you go this route, you're destroying that tissue permanently, but those cylinders are attached to some tubing. There's a pump in the scrotum and there's a reservoir that holds the fluid that's usually placed in like the retropubic space or some other kind of ectopic position. And when you activate that pump in the scrotum, you pump it up, pump, 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 and you get an erection. It works. It's not the same as having a natural erection. The head of the penis, the glands, does not get hard like it does in a natural erection because that tissue is not getting that blood supply. And so a lot of guys are sold, and and I'm biased against these. I'll just be honest with you. They're great if you truly have, have exhausted all their options, but a lot of guys are talked into these before they've tried everything else, and they're really very unhappy and disappointed because it's not the same as a natural erection. They think it's going to make their penis bigger. It doesn't. These things can break. They're hydraulic, and so they, they, they won't last forever. Uh, if they erode through the tip of the penis, because it happens, uh, they have to be removed and replaced. They can get infected. So there's all kinds of issues with these things. But what I do is we exhaust all options before I have to refer out for that. And it's been a long time since I've had to refer anybody out for an IPP. What I do is obviously start start with... Things like Cialis or Viagra. I like Cialis better than Viagra, honestly. Viagra just tends to cause a lot more headaches, flushing, things like that. I like the daily Cialis. If that doesn't work, PRN Cialis on top of it's fine, which PRN means as needed. I like Trimix. I like intracavernosal injections. It sounds terrible when you first mention it to some patients. They're like, there's no way I can do that. It's not as bad as it sounds. I've never done it to myself, but I've given a lot of injections teaching people, and they're like, Oh, that was it. That's no big deal. It's it's an insulin needle at the base of the penis, you know, on nine or three o'clock position. Within twenty minutes, you got a really good natural feeling erection. Everything's firm. It works the same way. The only thing with those is you have to be careful with the dosing because you don't want to use too much so that you get a priapism, meaning you know, erection that doesn't go away. But that if that's rare, honestly, if you're doing it the right way. I've only had a few of the a couple in maybe five years here, and so. When men haven't had an erection in a long time, they actually think that sounds inviting. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, it does. yes. <laughs> like, yeah, I can go for like, hours. That's a side effect. Yeah, I'm like yeah, exactly. Side effect. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, but I, I think it works really well. You know, I have a ton of guys who've had prostate cancer and have had treatment for that, including you know either radiation or or their prostates removed, and they're gonna. Most of them are going to end up with ED to the point where now some of them respond well to, to the orals, but a lot of them, it's just not enough. They'll get, you know, a 50% erection with those. Trimix is a great, because usually a lot of those guys, if they're healthy, otherwise they still got great blood supply. And so it's just the nerves that were damaged. So they, you know, may not, may not take as much, you know, of the medicine to give them a good erection. Now, if you got a severe diabetic, those are probably my most common that need, need the Trimix or quad mix. Um, they're a little trickier. Because a lot of times their blood supply is also destroyed from microvascular disease and the 
Trimix and stuff just isn't going to work. You know, if, they, if they're late stage and those guys may need more of like an IPP, but again, a lot of times they're not healthy enough to even get them because once they're that bad off, they may not even be a candidate to go under general anesthesia. So there's, there's a line in there somewhere, but that's kind of my spiel on that. You know, I, I agree with you. I think at Victor, you know, we, we treat a lot of ED and I think I can think of maybe two people that have failed Trimix and ended up with an implant out of the, out of how many thousands of patients that we've treated. So you really can't have good success on all these other treatments before ending up in a surgical situation. So there's good options out there. Well, I appreciate you being on the show today, uh, your wealth of knowledge. And how can people find you on social media? So I'm on Facebook. Uh, it's my personal page. I don't have any kind of business page or anything like that right now. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm so like, I'm a dinosaur when it comes to that <laughs> stuff, honestly. I'm on, I'm on Instagram, but I never post on there. But um, TRT and Hormone Optimization is the group on Facebook. Uh, like you said, I'm at Paris Urology. Um, that's where we are here. My, my wife is a general urologist with me as well. She's seeing females for hormone replacement. I'm treating the males. So we get a lot of husband and wife combos, you know, because it, it tends to be needed on both yeah, sides. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, we love it. I mean, we really are. She's been doing it about a year for the, the hormone stuff. And I, I finally talked her into it because I told her how good she'd be at it. And uh, she she loves it. She's doing a great job. She We both did the Rousier courses. Um, you know, just to, I did them just to get the CME, honestly, and learn a few things. I'm not treating women, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. And so, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But we're we're here. I mean, we're you know we're doing telemedicine for for Texas residents, but you do we're we're trying to get people to come you know in person for the first visit. Just you know, we like to establish that relationship anyway in person, and then we can do telemed after that. As of now, who knows what the rules will say in a year or two? But out of state, they do need to come in physically. You know, at least once a year. Some come in more frequent than that. So. Perfect. And I'll attach all this in the show notes so people can easily find you. And I appreciate you being on the show, Dr. Grant. Awesome. Thanks, Amy. It was fun. Thank you.